We continue tonight in our third class on the topic of Holy Tradition, and the court, the classes are being recorded and uploaded to the website eventually, so if you have missed some, you can go and see that on the website, or hear that. I want to talk tonight about the various components of Holy Tradition. We have several handouts here that will reinforce the discussion. The Bible is, takes the first place in holy tradition. We talked about last week about the Bible in its proper context within the life of the church. The church is a scriptural church. The church wrote the scriptures. The, church, the, the scriptures are the written record of God's revelation and therefore <clears throat> the re- written revelation of teaching, of doctrine. The word doctrine and teaching are interchangeable, mean the same thing. heard a preacher once say that we need to get away from those doctrines and get back to the Bible. This doctrine is keeping everybody separate. Of course, the problem with that is the Bible is about doctrine. It's about teaching it's the revelation, the written revelation of God's, of God's teaching inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is the Word of God. <clears throat> Something to note in, in, the, in the church's view of Scripture is that the, 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 script, the church doesn't see Scripture simply as sort of a flat line where everything is more or less of equal weight, which is more typical of the sort of fundamentalist view of Scripture, which is to say some obscure passage in Numbers might be just as important as something in the the Gospels because that's what's being preached on today or whatever. But um, the church has a certain hierarchy of importance when it looks at at the Bible. And so here it is. First and foremost, of course, the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, his saying, his deeds, uh, his life, death, and resurrection. And so the gospel is, is primary, and the gospels, uh, the book that's on the altar, is, is only the four gospels. It's only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not the whole Bible that sits on the altar. The gospel, as if the Lord is enthroned in his word on the altar. And again, Russian word for altar, peshtol, <coughs> is also the <coughs> the, the uh, lecturer was choking. <laughs> <coughs> no, the um, it's another word for for throne, the peshtol. So the altar table and throne are are. Uh, Synonymous. So, Gospels, then the Book of Acts would be next. The uh, accounts of the uh, exploits of the apostles in the earliest times of the church, including <clears throat> the uh, revelation of Pentecost. Then the epistles, all the different letters of the New Testament written by St. Paul, St. Peter, St. John, James, Jude, and so forth would be at the next level. And then finally the book of Revelation. 
which is not read in church, in the Orthodox Church, uh, on any day of the year, as an assigned specific reading. I mean, priests will preach on it, but it's not in the assigned reading. The assigned readings, and there are daily assigned readings. There's a church lectionary. There's a uh, a, uh, a a scriptural program for every day of the church year, which pretty much will take you through all all of the New Testament. <coughs> but but those readings will be assigned. Uh, from the Gospels, the Epistles, and the Book of Acts. So, of course, in the hierarchy, New Testament is above Old Testament in importance. From the Old Testament, there is a certain importance of those books for us as well, and the Psalms have the highest place. The Psalms, the Psalter, was the prayer book of the Jews and continued to be the prayer book, the hymn book, of, of the Christian church. <clears throat> and so the psalms are very important. So much of our worship is uh, our, our psalms written, uh, psalms set to music and sung. Then we would complete it with the prophets. And of course many of the important prophecies pointing to our Lord and, and his incarnation. And um, wisdom books, Proverbs, uh, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiastic. Ecclesiastes and in, in the Orthodox Church Ecclesiasticus as well and and the history finally of Israel not that it's unimportant but again we see, we find meaning in the Psalms, the Prophets and the Wisdom Books um, and, and then in the history uh, as well and we spoke of of the understanding of Scripture especially in the Old Testament as Typology is our method of, of reading the Old Covenant, which is to say we accept the history, we accept the historical reality of what unfolded, but we look for types. We look for uh, revelation of specific and profound meaning, transcendent meaning, pointing us typically towards the New Covenant. Questions on that? There's water in here somewhere. So, Father? Yes. What you read or what's read, does the calendar tell us those are the readings for that day, right? So for Sunday, we could look the day before and see what's... Absolutely. You can look ahead. You can read the scriptures anticipating Sunday's epistle and gospel readings and see if, you know, what you would preach instead of what I preach. Or <laughs> what, or actually meditate on and think about it, which can help you to prepare to hear the sermon. Um, I know some priests encourage their people to do that. I've, I probably have occasionally off, off, off and on over the years, but probably not recently. But yes, you can do that, definitely. So it's a, it's a good thing. So there must be some kind of progression right, during the, um, from all the different readings? Well, there's a pattern. I mean, it's, there's not... Uh, after Pascha, it's, it's the Gospel of John and the Book of Acts, very specifically. Then um, largely the Book of Matthew in the summer and the Book of Luke in the fall. There's even something called the Lucan jump, where we jump from Matthew to Luke at this time of the year. And uh, we're in Luke, pretty much through Christmas now, and but and but there's no exact 
now we're it's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John laid out in a specific way. Um, sometimes it will re, it will uh, will preach from. Uh, I mean, the, re, the reading will be from Mark. Um, I forget if that's a specific time of the year necessarily, but definitely Matthew, Luke, and John <clears throat> have their specific time. Absolutely, there are. Absolutely, uh, readings. They are. Re- there are repetition. Okay. Some of the epistles do repeat during the year, and then for certain feasts. But yes, and this we would say too <clears throat> is um, part of our interp- in our understanding of Scripture is to see how the church uses it in worship. So. Obviously, the church read the readings for Christmas are t- telling us something about how we understand those readings as applying to the Lord's birth, um, whether it's prophecies or epistles or whatever. So, so absolutely, the way the church utilizes Scripture in the various seasons is is part of our interpret the key of interpretation. The church is again putting them in context. Old Testament, yeah, mostly. Old Testament. It, Is that... It's for specific <laughs> holy days, feast days, saints days. Certain saints days have 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 readings, okay. and sometimes, like if it's Saint if for apostles, it might be a a, a New Testament epistle reading okay. on on vespers. But yeah, when it's a, there are different degrees of the holy days, besides the twelve major feasts of the church. Then there are there are other days, holy days and saints days. And a, a local saint is more important to a given local church than maybe another, and so there would be, might be readings called for. And there's there is literally a recipe book for all that, <clears throat> and it's called the Typicon. Typicon. In church usage, we get a sort of distilled. Rubric book instruction of of guidelines based on the rules of the Typicon. It's done for us at St. Ticon's Monastery, and so they set up a rule book of what to be what's to be done when. Because I'll talk about <clears throat> the complexity of worship and the different layers of how things layer in in worship, uh, how it's built up over the centuries, and so you you do need a sort of guideline book um, because there's themes. For instance, just to give an idea, there's 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 movable uh, holy days. Christmas is on a different day every every year, right? Uh, so it's a movable feast. December 25th falls on anywhere from Sunday to to Saturday. There are there are liturgical themes from every day of the week. Sunday, of course, is resurrection, and and also the crucifixion, resurrection, uh, which everybody would know that. But then Saturday is still the Sabbath. Uh, as a theme, but it's also a remembrance of the martyrs and of the departed. Uh, Monday, the angels. Tuesday, St. John the Baptist. Wednesday, the Lord's betrayal, crucifixion. Um, Thursday, the apostles. Friday, again, the Lord's crucifixion, of course. And so those days have, have, have hymnology assigned 
for each day of the week. And then the then whatever else is on the calendar either layers with it or pushes it out. So, so if Christmas is on a Sunday, and yeah, okay. yeah. So if Christmas is on a Sunday, it kind of pushes out the, the what would otherwise be the typical resurrectional material for that for that Sunday because it's a special day on this year. Then next year it'll be on Monday, and Sunday will still you know. So it's I'll, I will kind of I have some handouts on that, and I'll diagram that a little bit more. But um, and we're worship is the next theme as well. But but yeah, we'll talk about that some more. And and mostly to to just to let so that you see that it's com- it's complicated, but that it has and the reason it's complicated is because the church is two thousand years old. And there's been this devo- growth and development of, of commemorations of, of the church's memory, where every day of the church year, uh, some, some saints or several saints are remembered in the church's memory, and there's a certain amount of remembrance of them in the church's uh, church services. Uh, mentioned last week, which is important to state again, holy tradition is the inner inner authority of the Holy Spirit guiding the life of the church. That in Western models of Christianity, it seems like the Bible uh, is over the churches and the Reformation tradition, so that a church would say, we look to the Bible for guidance for our church life. Roman Catholics would seem to have the Pope over and above the church guiding and directing the church so that we as Catholics then we look to the Pope to guide and direct us in our church life. Those are authorities seemingly over and above, almost outside church life in the Roman Catholic and Protestant models. Orthodoxy, again, Christ is the head of his church, um, but he is the head of the church. The church is his body. Um, but the church is directed in its, in its regular life by the inner authority of holy tradition, the Holy Spirit within the church. And it's the holy tradition the whole, and the life of the Holy Spirit in the church that, um, in a sense, counters the church's apparent uh, disorganization, organizationally speaking, institutionally. It's It's... Uh, lack of focus, lack of a locus of, of authority. Um, we have we have bishops, we have the scripture, but the bishops and the scripture live within the life of the church. But we again we we trust that God is guiding all of this, and we and it's holy and it's by holy tradition. Which is to say, the church in the twenty first century is going to continue to look to the Bible, to worship, to the church councils, to the fathers, to the saints to canon law, to the church art, as sources of teaching, guidance, direction, truth, and revelation of God's will for us, both collectively, co- corporately, as the, as the body of Christ, as the whole church, and, and personally, each of us as individual believers. We refer to the second letter of Peter, Second Peter one twenty, knowing this first that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. 
So again, the context of Scripture in the life of the church. Individual readers uh, are careful. Um, well, it's, it's individual readers as, as individual Orthodox Christians reading the Scripture are not alone in this matter of interpretation. We can look to the fathers, to their commentaries on the Word of God. We can look to how the church uses given scripture and worship and so forth. Um, every spiritual father, confessor I've ever had, priest, has encouraged me to read a chapter of the gospel a day, every day, um, as a sort of foundational basic minimum. So it's it's not that the church in any way wants us to stay, you know, that doesn't trust us to read the word of God. But we have, it's not a matter of one's private interpretation. Um, and, and there's danger of error if we choose to trust our own personal interpretation. If we have a question uh, of something in Scripture, we, 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 we have options to go and, and get help and get direction and get consensus. There's the famous episode, the book of Acts, where... Uh, the Apostle Philip is directed to go. There's a caravan going by, and there's the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to the cha- to this chariot. And Philip ran there to him and heard, and heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you read? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And so, so St. Philip, Apostle Philip came and sort of gave a Bible study interpretation, support, help to this uh, man uh, who was traveling along there. So we accept the guidance of the church. Um, when we say that we say that scripture is inspired, inspired, how do we understand that? Which is to say, it's infused by God. It's it's God. God inspires the Scripture, both the writing of it and the interpretation of it. But in in the Scriptures unfolding, it's still spoken and revealed to and through human beings. That human words express the written word of God. And so God and and man work together in a synergy. In uh, the, the in the writing and the inspiration of, of the word of God in the scripture there's a passage I like to point to second letter of Peter 3.15 on account of the long suffering of our an account that the that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So Saint Peter is saying, Saint Paul's 
not always easily understood, and I think that's just great. <laughs> He's saying Paul has a certain writing style that's dense and that's sometimes need to be unpacked, as we say today. Peter is more straightforward in his writing, fisherman. But um, I think there's an indication of the human element still. In other words, the scripture writers are, did not go into a robotic trance and sort of dictate and write down what was given to them. Their humanity, their own humanity, their own human energy, their own human com- contribution was still, is still in the writing. And, and there's no problem with that. You know, it's, it's, we're, we're totally comfortable saying St. Paul has a style, St. Peter has a style, St. James has a style, but they're still revealing to us God's truth, God's words, God's revelation, God's will for our lives. And again, the Bible and doctrine are not opposed. As part of tradition, virtually all doctrines are biblical in origin. There's nothing contradictory as far as the essential doctrines that are revealed in Scripture. All parts of Scripture are interpreted by the church in the light of Christ, in the light of Christ. Uh, so everything in the Bible, in the Old Covenant, leads up to Christ and speaks about him. And so we do as well look at the Old Covenant in, in light of the fact that we believe the Messiah has come in the light of Christ. And we look for the indications, pointers to Christ throughout the Old Testament. And so that's a, that's a sort of another hermeneutic, another biblical method of, 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 of viewing the scripture. But again, we're not a religion of the book alone. Just as the Bible is the written word of God in human form, our Lord Jesus Christ is the living word of God in human form, the living expression of God in human form, and we look to him. Questions on that? Liturgy, worship, as the next element of holy tradition. The word liturgy, liturgia, means the work of God's people. The work of God's people, that worship is work. It's a common action work of the people of God um, comes from two root words laos for people and ergia for work um, we also use the word ecclesia for the gathering those who are called those who are called out those who are called uh, to worship to corporate life liturgy we'd say is the living experience of holy tradition by the Christian people. It's the living experience of God's word, of God's truth. Uh, the hymns, the hymns of, of the church's worship are considered a uh, reliable source of, of teaching, of truth, uh, that they are considered written, uh, written sources of doctrine, uh, or sung sources of doctrine, um, of teaching, of truth. And we believe that Israel in the Old Covenant had had liturgy. It had ritualized, structured worship. And so ritualized, structured worship was not strange to the Christians, was not um, something they would have, would have rejected. Um, 
we argue that the Christians, in terms of worship, uh, did not did not reject uh, the the Jewish context of uh, the Jewish forms and context of worship. Book of Acts talks about them uh, going to the temples still, and then meeting in the houses for for the Christian worship. So we say that <clears throat> in its fundamental structure. I think I'll remove this here. In its fundamental structure, worship has two sources from, from the Old Covenant. The temple and the synagogues. There was one temple in Jerusalem. There were many synagogues. Each town had its own synagogue, gathering place, um, and so there was there was structured system of worship for each of these venues. Uh, the temple was primarily focused on sacrifice. The temple in Jerusalem, uh, one special unique building that the Jews also believed that the very glory and presence of God dwelt in that structure. The synagogues, houses of gathering throughout wherever Jews lived in various towns uh, besides Jerusalem, uh, were places of prayer and scripture study. Um, and so the worship structure of the synagogues, the worship structure of the temple, we say, composes essentially the two halves of what came to be the Christian divine liturgy, the Christian Eucharistic service. That um, the, first half of, the first half of liturgy is from the synagogue. The, the presentation um, of, of Scripture and the preaching on Scripture and then the uh, temple sacrificial system is replaced by Holy Communion, the Holy Eucharist. And that's, that's where we, we understand uh, the, the essential inheritance of, of what it is of Christian worship. Um, that there was, a Christian, in effect, a christening of that Jewish worship. The forms, the structure... Of Jewish worship, especially and especially, it included uh, uh, being wrapped around the Psalms and the Psalter and the singing of hymns, based on, uh, often sing, put, setting the Psalms to music and singing them. Now there, now we see that worship centered after the coming of Christ, that it came to be understood they would they took that form of worship, but it now became to be centered. The con the content was changed, the content became. Uh, the, the person of Jesus Christ, and so that the Jewish structure of worship was given eternal, an eternal reference in the light of Christ, in the light of Christ's kingdom. Um, questions on that? We don't go into a lot of detail on the liturgy. It could be its own specific course, but um, the temple and the synagogue, synagogue and temple. It was also for the Christians, <clears throat> inevitably, that Old Testament Jewish feasts would find their New Testament corollary, uh, New Testament feast. So, for instance, um, there's the Jewish Passover, and there's the Christian 
Passover or Pascha. The Jewish Passover, this remembrance of the Exodus, of, of God liberating the, the Jews from bondage to Egypt. The Pascha, Christ's Passover, our lib- his liberation from life to from death to life, and our liberation as well, from bondage to sin, sin, death, and the devil, and and into the uh, freedom of the new life in Christ, our liberation. There was a there was an Old Testament feast of Pentecost, and the New Testament feast. The, the, the Old Testament feast was the remembrance of the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. New Testament Pentecost is what. giving of the Holy Spirit. There are other um, festal corollaries, but those are the most important. And most essentially, in the Eucharist, in the liturgy, the body and blood of Christ replaces animal sacrifice. Now it's true there has been an evolution gradually in worship over centuries, over time. Specifically, I think I already talked about it sort of early about the conversion of Constantine led church services going from a house service done quietly in secret under the threat of, with the threat of arrest and martyrdom ever hanging over the early church. And with the conversion of Constantine, Christianity being made the official faith of the empire, then public buildings, government buildings being given to the Christians to have services in suddenly worship by its by uh the reality of of the of the uh, spacing and and the amount of people became larger the worship became bigger became more visual with processions and movement and something to look at in the altar area raised up so people could see over the the fellow in front of them and so forth um and over time and especially in the monasteries, there are two, two. There were two great centers of liturgical flowering of development: Saint Savas Monastery in Jerusalem, which still exists there outside of Jerusalem, and the Saint and uh, the Studion Monastery in Constantinople, uh, which does no longer exist. Which is where Saint Simeon, our Saint Simeon, came was a member of the Studion uh, monastic brotherhood, which was right in the heart of Constantinople. But um, those were two places where. We're talking now in the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th century, latter part of the first millennium, of flowering and enriching of, of hymnography, of, of hymn writing, um, not just setting scripture to music, but, but composed hymns uh, were in, developed in these monastic centers. And so that... The essential core of, of, the, of what the essence of, of the Eucharistic service, even from the earliest times of the church, was always there, but there was sort of an embellishment, uh, a flowering, and adi- sort of uh, an addition of other aspects uh, enriching the service and expanding it. Um, but again, that happened over, over a slow period of time, yes? And is it not true that uh, even, even though the, uh, like you were saying, the, the uh, worship started out sort of uh, in, in, in houses, and kind of hushed and quiet, that there was still a, a, a rather formalized structure to to the worship. It wasn't yes. Freeform. Yeah. I mean, there, there are. It was a little more freeform than it is now. 
whereas, um, and you do have some early church descriptions. St. Justin Martyr talks about the uh, Eucharistic celebrant at, at some point prays as best he can mm-hmm. uh, at, the, at the Eucharistic high point of the liturgy so that there was a certain freedom for the, 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 the presbyter, the priest, to, to, to pray extemporaneously. Um, that's, we're talking second century, in the 100s. Um, so that, that's one example we have, but yes, it was, it was structured worship. And again, from the temple, from the synagogue, they, they, the apostles for a moment didn't think that they had the wherewithal to take and reinvent the wheel of, of worship and come up with some whole different Christian thing. Um, they, they understood that as Jews, they had a relationship to God. And now that relationship was not cut off, but it was enriched and deepened by the fact they believed the Messiah had come. And so probably in Antioch, they were first called Christians in the apostolic era. But I mean, probably the apostles themselves considered themselves Jews, Jews who had accepted the, the fulfillment of Judaism with the coming of the, of the anointed one, right, the Holy One of God. Judaizers came up from Jerusalem and said that the, the non-Jews among them had to become Jews, and that was what called the Council of Jerusalem in Acts right. 18. And that was the first question as to how Jewish do the early Christians need to be? How Jewish do the Christian converts, Gentile converts to Christianity, how much of Jewish identity do they get? Do they, do they require? And so that was the, the, that was the struggle, the subject of the First Council and um, that's known as the Council of Jerusalem, Book of Acts, chapter fifteen. Uh, so the um, one of the center points of worship, as we said, that we see worship as as the source of doctrine, and the the theology books look to a Latin expression, lex orande, est lex credende, as as to what oh my, my credende is running off here. <laughs> lex orande est lex credende. What does that mean? The rule of prayer, the way we pray, is the rule of faith. The way we pray, the way we, what we do in worship, what is revealed in worship, it reveals our faith. The rule of prayer is the rule of faith. Lex orande est lex credende. How we pray, how we manifest our public worship uh, reveals the church's teaching, reveals what the church believes. Um, and we believe uh, that it, within context of holy tradition, the litur- liturgical life has no errors, um, that we trust it to reveal the genuine teaching of the Orthodox Church, and, that it, and we believe that worship provides a true experience and knowledge of God. There's also this. I once got this in the mail from a local church. Two cups of coffee shown. A church where you can choose your blend. Smooth, traditional, inspiration rich, robust, contemporary, fresh, rhythm, experience. We would never, as Orthodox, see tradition as optional in that context. That's, That's definitely not an Orthodox understanding of tradition as 
well, you can try that, or you can, we can do something different. You can do the rock band, praise band thing. Um, tradition is vitally essential to our self-understanding as Orthodox Christians. One other thing, people say, well, maybe Scripture's not that important in Orthodoxy. This is um, this here, this piece of paper, a few pieces of paper here, is the New Testament in Russian. That was um, used in the communist Soviet times. It's, it's the New Testament in miniature that could be slipped in a book and taken around and no one would know that you're walking around with the New Testament. So some people went through great pains to do that just as a reminder that the scripture is important for orthodox Christians can I ask you a question sure how new is like the newest thing in orthodox worship like are we talking like a thousand years ago or older yeah really about a thousand years ago the as I say to people the services you experience that you in in the Orthodox Church today have not changed in 500 years at all which is to say the Reformation occurred 500 years ago the Orthodox Church has been just continuing to be itself the same throughout the last 500 years in the previous 500 years to that which is to say in the last thousand years there may be some minor changes, developments that a liturgical expert would note or somebody who's liturgically aware would pick up on. But still, in the past thousand years, pretty much the, the schedule of services, what we do in worship is set. Is set. And when I say set, I guess it's good to We'll look at that a little bit. There's a daily cycle of services. Every day of the church year, worship begins, actually worship begins at sunset with the Vesper service. Liturgical time is measured from the evening before, is the beginning of the new day. There was evening and there was morning one day, and we say it we, we hear in Genesis. And so Jewish time is the same, Jewish time, Byzantine time. In the Jewish tradition, Sabbath begins Friday evening at sunset. The Orthodox understanding the Lord's Day, the day of the resurrection, Sunday, begins Saturday evening at sunset, or with the service of Vespers. Vespers means evening. Esperinon in Greek in Greek means evening. Um, and uh so it's the evening service. The evening service. It can take place anywhere from about 3 p.m. to 7 p.m., more or less. Some, some monasteries, they really try to time it exactly to sunset, so that time will shift throughout the year, you know, as winter and summer. But it's the afternoon-evening service. Then there's the service of Compline. 
which in Greek is a podepnon, which literally means after dinner. So it's the after dinner service. It's a, it's a simply, more or less simple read service of prayers and psalms, but Compline Vespers, Compline, first hour, no, that's not right, Compline, um, Matins, the morning service, Matins, Matin, in, in Latin, matin, Matins is, is morning, French, morning, Matin, the morning service, then there's first hour, third hour, sixth hour, and ninth hour. We have the royal hour service. Is that what would the, the first, third, sixth, and ninth when we're going through? Done is a done is one compiled service. Yes, first, third, sixth, and ninth. Um, Vespers has a certain theme of creation, fall, and redemption built into the unfolding of it as marked by certain hymns in, in the service. Um, in a monastery, you go to Vespers, you march to dinner, then you march back to the church for Compline. It's like one continual liturgical movement with dinner sort of included in the, in the middle of that, that, between Vespers and Compline. Matins can take place, matins can take place anywhere in the Athenite tradition early in the morning. For even from 2, 3 a.m. in the morning till till the regular time, 9 a.m. Uh, it varies. You're scaring people. <laughs> in, the, in the Slavic tradition of orthodoxy, there's a service called Vigil, which is the evening service, a combination of Vespers and Matins together. It's Vespers plus Matins. done in the evening. The different hourly themes <clears throat> have different hours of the day have a certain theme. Um, anybody know what happened at the third hour? Biblically? What? Crucifixion. No. The sin of the Holy Spirit. The third hour is around 9 a.m. Right? When the Holy Spirit came and uh, they said, well, these guys can't be drunk. It's too early. <laughs> Third hour, 9 a.m. Sixth hour is at 12 noon. What happened then? So that's crucifixion, right? Ninth hour, around 3 p.m. Ninth hour, the Lord gave up the spirit. The Lord died on the cross. And so the, these, those, those things are remembered in those services. First hour is more or less sun, sunrise, but as a theme, general, beginning of the day. But the uh, third hour, Pentecost, 12, sixth hour, 12 noon, the noonday demon, remembered from the scripture talks about, but, but the Lord on the cross, the Lord giving up him, his soul on the cross. So that's the structure. The, and then, well, the divine liturgy, the Eucharistic service, um, comes in here somewhere and it it has flexibility as to when the liturgy is celebrated it can be served as a midnight service it can be served typically early morning or late morning uh, in most parish life in the west it's a late morning service 10 even 11 a.m in some places some places serve a little earlier 9 9 30 but um 
the liturgy is sort of separate from the regular movement of other things in terms of, of, of when it may be served. Sometimes churches will, will read, read the third and sixth hour before liturgy begins if they're not doing matins in the morning. So the point there is that that structure of worship has been in existence for centuries. And whatever we celebrate in the church, whether it's the Lord birth, Lord's birth at Christmas, the Lord's resurrection at, at Easter, at Pascha, um, any other holy day, we celebrate it with Vespers, Compline, Matins, Divine Liturgy, Hours, and so forth. In other words, there's a Christmas Vespers, there's a Christmas Compline, there's a Christmas Matins, there's a Christmas Divine Liturgy. There's a Paschal Vespers, Paschal, so forth, Matins, and we, whatever it is we celebrate, it's, plug, it's, it's fit within the structure of these daily cycle of service. This is called the sanctification of time. Basically, markers of the of the daily of of our daily life are marked with worship services, morning and evening, and so forth. Typically, this this schedule is fulfilled in in seminaries and or monasteries and some seminaries, in terms of a daily cycle of of at least the daily cycle of matins and vespers, morning and evening services, and then liturgies for special days. Um, you don't see it nearly as much in parishes, but certain cathedral churches throughout the world, like some of the, the ones you see on the wall, their pictures on the wall, they'll be doing a daily. They have a daily cycle of these services. <clears throat> so that's. A question about this. Yes. Are these all services where, like, a priest needs to be presiding over it, or are some of these, like, I don't know, like more personal services you can do with your family, or how does that kind of operate? Primarily, they're done with a priest in a church building at this point in church history, but they may be done as what we call reader services, um, which is what Shea is doing in, in Tuscaloosa. With a, he'll do a reader's compline without that you just, whatever parts that would be assigned to the priest are left out and you just do the, the rest of the service. You can do a reader's vespers that way and so forth. So it is done. It's done more in a missionary context typically if you don't have priests and clergy to, to cover um, but their their full structure is, is meant to, to be initiated by, by a priest and concluded by a priest blessing so for instance just for instance since we're going I said we'd get into the complexity of it For tomorrow, we remember the Apostle Stachys of the Seventy and Saint, the higher martyr St. John Kuchurov. St. John Kuchurov was a Russian priest, came from Russia, and... Did you start that? I did. Continue. Came from Russia and um, helped build the cathedral in Chicago, which is Holy Trinity Cathedral, which is there today. Um, in around 1917, he returned to Russia at the time of around the time of the revolution, and was the first priest martyr in Russia. He was the first priest to be martyred by the communists. He's remembered tomorrow. So, if we were having service for him um, tonight at vespers. 
there would be a certain amount of hymns for St. John, but there will also be a certain amount of hymns for Wednesday, which is the remembrance of the Lord's betrayal and crucifixion. By anticipation, Judas betrayed the Lord on Wednesday, and so we, we, we sort of already remember it as a cross day, and therefore as well, we, we, we have a, a discipline of fasting where we fast typically in an Orthodox week on both Wednesday and Friday, remembering the Lord's uh, betrayal, trial, crucifixion. Uh, Wednesday and Friday as fast days, the pink days you see on the calendar. By the way, if anybody would like a wall calendar, if you don't have it, that kind of track what the church is doing by a wall calendar, we have those available for you. So we would layer in the theme of, of remembering St. John because he's sort of in the catalog of our American saints, even though he was here a short time, we, we recognize him for the, for the work that he did and for his martyric witness uh, in the face of the communists. Um, so he's, he's important uh, in the American church. Um, so again, it would figure in certain themes for Wednesday as, as crucifixion day as it always is on a weekly basis, and then hymns for St. John, possible additional hymns for the Apostle Stachius. There were, besides the 12 apostles, there are 70 others. Are you familiar with that? Book, book of Luke, chapter 10. Uh, the Lord sent out 70 others. After these things, the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two by two, sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. So those seventy, we know their names in, in the church's memory. A lot of holy tradition, part of holy tradition is simply the church's memory. It's the family memory. The church remembers. Um it's ancestry, so to speak. It's, it's spiritual relatives. And I should have said this last week, but, but holy tradition, I think it was Chesterton that said it, but it makes perfect sense. He said, holy tradition is giving your ancestors a vote. Holy tradition is giving the past, all those people from the past, giving them a vote, a say in what's happening at this moment. And so another way of kind of... Uh, looking at holy tradition but so we remember the 70 and, and uh, we we have all the names now some of those though are, are names you would know um, because for instance Luke Apostle Luke is not one of the 12 but he is one of the 70 interesting same thing with the um, Apostle Mark evangelist Apostle Evangelist Mark he's one of the 70 he's not one of the 12 Matthew and, and, and John were, were of the twelve, right? Um, some others, some of the other scripture writers, Titus, Jude, James, are uh, the brother of the Lord who wrote the epistle of James, are part of the twelve, are part of the seventy, not of the twelve. And uh, other names as well that you would know, Philemon and Onesimus, uh, or Onesimus as some. I think my daughter once said, "What is it? Onesimus? No, it's not Onesimus. It's Onesimus. But um, they're part of the. They're they're members of the twelve as well. And uh, Timothy also. Epistles of there's two epistles. First and second Timothy, disciple of Paul. 
And Paul himself is sort of the 13th apostle. He's not one of the 12, but he's not really considered the 7 either. Uh, I want to quote from, just going back to Scripture again for a moment, St. Macarius of Optina said, Though you might have a thorough knowledge of the Scripture, yet with self-opinion you will not gain any profit. For the enemy knows how to ambush and deceive such ones by false consolation, as he appears in the form of an angel of light. Quoting 2 Corinthians 11.14. So, um, a, a, a great knowledge of Scripture that's however ego-centered and, and self-glorifying, like, hey, look at me, I'm, I know my Bible, um, is, it will not lead to your spiritual profit, is the church's understanding. Besides worship, what we do corporately as the body of Christ, as the people of God, um, there's there's our personal spirituality. I don't say private because there's no there's no private spirituality. God and the angels are witnesses to our prayer, our spiritual life. Personal spirituality, the the what we do personally on our own, undergirds our worship life. Worship supports our personal spiritual life. Our personal life of prayer and spirituality under and supports our our worship. So um, that we would say it, it's essential to have one's own personal spiritual regimen, rule, routine as well as join together with the rest of the church in worship. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't pray. That the way of prayer um, has, its own, has its own place in holy tradition, its own support. That generally speaking, one has a rule, one has a regimen, a routine, either self-imposed or guided by one's priest or spiritual father, and that there's a whole tradition of spiritual guidance for one's uh, own personal walk with God. The, um, the rule of prayer, the way of prayer includes prayer books, However, we could say for sure that prayer books, by, from an Orthodox point of view, are very new, are very novel, in the sense that they only began to ex- come into existence after the printing press, after Gutenberg. So we're talking the last 500 years, prayer books as something one might have in, in one's possession um, developed. The prayer books have a group of morning prayers, evening prayers, and might have the Compline service, which of all the services that can be done at home, Compline's the, the typical one, the common one, that can be done as sort of after dinner service for, as a family. But the prayer book typically includes the beginning, the, the Trisagian prayers, which I think I handed out in an early handout the first week, the basic regimen of, of the Holy God, Holy Mighty, concluding with the Our Father. 
Then it has certain composed prayers by various saints of the church that the church has kept in its memory and collected and, and, and put them in, uh, grouping them for both morning and evening prayers. And also certain psalms to be read as a part of that routine. Psalm 51, typically, in the morning prayer, and, and, and to read the creed. But prayer book, again, is a, is a new idea. The prayer book of Christians, in the, for most of Christian history, is, is, is the Psalter often set to memory, or at least some of the Psalms set to one's memory. And so to pray the Psalter prayers, pray, pray various Psalms as, as part of one's, one's prayer life. But also, within the context of the rule, there's the use of the Jesus prayer, the repeating of the phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And when it's done as part of the rule, to do a certain number of the Jesus prayer. Prostrations, physical bowing to the floor with the sign of the cross. Prostrations, uh, and usually accompanied by the Jesus prayer itself as well, to do a certain amount of prostrations, especially for the young and the young at heart. Fasting as a part of one's spirituality and, of course, scripture reading, as we've talked about, as part of the routine. And again, the book of Psalms is common to both liturgical worship and to personal devotion, prayer. And so all of this is the other, the other aspect of, of worship, that we have a, a rule, a time with God. And the rule can be very, relatively short and to the point. It's in, in terms of the, the, uh, the value of it, it's, it's, would be, it's like where, where a runner, is it better for a runner to run a mile every day? Or to just say, well, this Saturday I'm going to run 10 miles. And then call the ambulance. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, the teaching is it's better to do a little every day than say, well, I'm going to, today I'm going to catch up spiritually because I'm, you know, so I'm blagging. Which is not a wrong thing, but it, it's more valuable to, have, to do something every day just as it would be to exercise a little every day. Um, than than one one outburst, one signing up at the gym and doing doing all the machines and so forth, and then never coming back. <laughs> so there's there's that as a rule in one's life, and um, <clears throat> it's sort of in in modern in the modern uh, um, context of of. Entering the church as a new convert and so forth, typically one starts with a prayer book and then may move into the, the use of the Jesus prayer and so forth. In the monastery, in the, the monastic rule, is the Jesus prayer and prostrations. As, as there's a daily time, whereas a, a monastic, I have a certain amount of the Jesus prayer and a certain amount of prostrations to do, and I get that done. Um, Maybe it's blocked out a certain time in my daily schedule, or I fit it in as I'm able with all my other work, worship and work responsibilities. But um, 
that again going back to the Egyptian desert, Palestinian desert, um, the the focus on the Jesus prayer uh, and prostrations was what you did in your cell, in your room, uh, in your personal time, your personal place with God. Is there a particular way that personal prayer is supposed to be done, whether it's spoken aloud, inwardly chanted, etc.? It can be done. It can be done both. Um, uh, in one's personal rule, you might just do it as a whisper on, on your breath, kind of, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, and you, make, you can make the sign of the cross with each petition. Um, or you can do it just mentally, without making a sound. If that's more comfortable, it, it's kind of what works for a given person. Some people need to hear it orally to help them concentrate. Some people do better just mentally saying it. Now, with the Jesus prayer as, okay, I'm going to do, say, 300 Jesus prayers for my daily rule. The idea of that is, especially if it's done in the morning, is to kickstart, help me to be prayerful throughout the day. That it, it's a it's a it's a starter to compel me to have a prayerful day and to 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 come back to the prayer from time to time. Whether I'm saying it uh, in the car or w- walking in the hallway or or just whenever that I can resort to it, return to it. Um, so at, so the rule is not simply I've done my rule, I'm done with prayer, but rather to help me to have a prayerful attitude, a prayerful state of being that carries me forward um, so it's sort of the the Jesus prayer as rule is a more active way of praying it where and, and in orthodoxy typically there's a home prayer corner or each person has their own prayer corner in, in, the, in each room bedroom or whatever where there's a special room set aside for that where you go um, and, it, and it typically involves the icons that you have a place set aside for prayer, personal uh, p- prayer place, where you 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 will stand uh, in, or kneel in prayer before the icons, and so if anybody would see you, they would say, "Well, he's praying." That that it's known that at that moment it's a you're praying. Whereas the Jesus prayer, then you can take with you and be praying it anywhere, and nobody could you be at a football game, be praying it, nobody would know. Especially when your team's losing, yes. <laughs> when you're um, praying at, at, at your space where you, you put your... Um, which way would icons be going? Should they be on a wall that's facing... East? Ideally facing east, ideally. Can't always be in the way the house is designed. But if you can, you try to have it eastern, east, facing east. It, would it be okay to have like a corner one? Yeah, yes. <laughs> So if it's a little bit northeast or southeast, that's fine. It's in the corner. I don't even know. You're east. I'm east. It's in the corner, but it's... Yeah. What is the reason for that? East is... is The Christians always look to east as kind of looking to Jerusalem, looking to the ultimate sense of the Lord's return. That it's... Um, of course, if you're east of Jerusalem that could be a <laughs> but I think I think even if you're east of Jerusalem you face east as kind of going I think you still do and it's it's 
the, the church, the temple, is meant to face east. And that's why the, the, that our temple here, the church here, faces east. The old building did not face south, but our southerners liked that fine. Um, <laughs> back to the Yankees. And, uh, and then the cannons are on the Red Mountain facing north. But, uh, but no, it, um, ideally, your church as well as your prayer corner should face east, but it's not its not the end of the world if you just can't find an eastern wall in a given apartment or house or whatever. Um, and people will have their prayer corner in their bedroom. It's not like, oh, the bedroom, you can't have. No, it's, it's pray, prayer is, God is everywhere, and he invented everything that goes on, including what goes on in the bedroom. And um, so it can be sanctified by prayer as well. So it doesn't, it doesn't need to be in a sort of neutral place or whatever. Um, it's just whatever, whatever works. And I've seen people have their prayer place in a hallway. Like at, at the end of the hallway, there's a wall, and the bedrooms go off of that, and so that's a good place to have it, um, maybe. But um, it just, it just whatever, whatever works, whatever it comes up with. And typical prayer corner is always to have an icon of Christ, an icon of the Virgin Mary, a Theotokos, one or, you know, on, the, on either side. Um, in this case, it's Christ in the middle, and the Virgin Mary on the left, and St. John the Baptist on the right. And if then you would have maybe your patron saint icon and any other icons of saints or holy days that are, that are meaningful to you. Um, and again, that's a personal thing. And again, that is how you set it up and uh, has, that you have a sort of personal input into how that unfolds and how you make that, how you develop that. And again, scripture reading as a discipline, as a daily um, going back. And, and the Gospels, it's just important to go back and see, see Jesus, see, his, see what he said, see how he lived, what he did. Um, it'd be just to remember, just to remember. And, and the, the teaching about Scripture reading is you can read something ten times, the eleventh time something new comes out at you. In a, in a certain way that, that um, you see it in a new light, you see something different that you hadn't seen, and, and the scripture has that, has that uh, ability to, to challenge us that way. We still have some time. So church councils as an important component of holy tradition. The Orthodox Church is conciliar, not papal, which is to say that difficulties are always settled by consensus, by a consensus of bishops primarily and sometimes people, faithful, but a council, a consensus, a gathering, a group. Um, and it, as we mentioned, the first council was in the book of Acts chapter 15 in Jerusalem, the question of the Gentiles as to what to... Um, how Jewish do the Gentile converts to Christianity need to be? And that council expressed in its decision uh, a very important phrase that has become the sort of the byword and the, the, the self-understanding of, of conciliar life of, of church councils throughout church history uh, when the uh, apostles said in their uh, coming to their conclusion, their decision, they said it has seemed good to, to, to the Holy Spirit and to us. 
it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And that in itself is, uh, you could say, a, um, an icon of holy tradition. It seemed good to us gathered, <coughs> using all our human faculties and components of, of, of reasoning and decision-making, that the Holy Spirit guided us to come to these conclusions, to this, to this decision. And the, the decision of that council was not as important in, in a way as, as how they phrased that decision. Um, so that the spirit of the councils is the belief in, in the Spirit's guidance of the whole church when it gathers in council, of the whole people of God, that councils became the regular way of dealing with disputes and problems, heresies, um, and the, the councils, as as it, as evidenced, are reminders that there's been plenty of problems in church history. There have been plenty of disputes uh, and 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 heresies troubling the church, and so there there have always been troubles in the church, and so I would say to you, um, those of you that pursue. Uh, your life to ultimately join to the orthodoxy that don't get discouraged or scandalized by troubles around the church from without or troubles within the church um, the church exists uh, as a battleground in, in warfare between light and darkness um, if there were no troubles we might begin to worry if there were no troubles in the church in the life of the church the church maybe then it would not be would not being be being prophetic not being faithful the church ever challenges Satan's domain and is ever challenged by Satan's attacks, both from within and from without. There are wolves at the door and there are wolves in sheep's clothing or in shepherd's clothing. Yes? So who may call the council? In the earliest times of the church, the emperor called it. The, the first council of, of the church, uh, ecumenical council in Nicaea, we'll read about that in one of your articles by our own deacon Ephraim, that... Um, the, the 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 problem was Arius saying Jesus is not God. This question, theological question of who is Jesus, is he the is he the only begotten divine Son of God, or is he not? Is he just a special creature, uh, maybe adopted sort of by God, but not really divine by nature? The theological question was a political problem in the empire. It was already the the empire having become Christian. Suddenly, there's a challenge to the very the very heart of the of the gospel. In this man, the priest of the church, Arius, uh, who resided in Alexandria, northern Egypt, questioning the very the very identity of, of Jesus Christ. And so the emperor said, "You bishops, come together and figure this out. This is a mess. I can't have this." People literally were arguing in the marketplace, theology. Um, you know, and and. Who do, who do you stand with, Arius or you know, the others, and so forth? And Saint Athanasius the Great was was uh, opposing Arius, but at a certain point was literally in hiding somewhere outside of Alexandria, writing letters, you know, blasting Arius. But he literally fearing for his life was was in exile, even though he was the uh, 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 was a bishop of the church in Alexandria. And so, um, yeah, it was it was a the emperors that, that called at least I think at least the first two councils maybe more though maybe the, maybe the first four even yes uh, the seventh one was called by the empress yeah the emperor so I think I mean the first I think all the seven councils were, were called by the 
by the emperors. Though the bishops were sent, there was a problem at hand, and um, I can't say the bishops didn't say to the emperor, "Please call a council. We need to." But but yeah, it was it was primarily the political figures. Yes. Who would, if there were to be like a a, a council like that, who who would be the one to to call it today? Would it just be kind of a mutual agreed upon thing by the the rest of the orthodox? Well, I was going to say yeah. Well, in, in our time now, councils have become a uh, a regular event of most national churches, whereas in in the, for instance in our Orthodox Church in America, which was originally the Russian Orthodox Church in America, but in our church we have a uh, every three years we gather in council as a routine, not because there's a problem necessarily, but but as a regular part of our church life, um, it's it's every three years. The big vote this year was whether or not it would be every four years instead of three years. <laughs> and there was like a 50-50 split on the question. Um, but that question required two-thirds majority, so it failed. But um, So yes, uh, most church life now, the councils are simply not extraordinary. Mm-hmm. They're a part of routine church life. So the Russian Orthodox Church every three years will gather. Greek Orthodox Church in Greece, same thing, will gather. Certain, you know, so that's kind of how it is now. Um, but the great ecumenical councils you'll be reading about or you have read about, there was a problem generally, except for the fifth. The fifth was sort of almost um, called just to tighten up some things canonically, but most of the others, there was a crisis of theology. There was a crisis, a division. Parties at, at war, at opposition within the church, and resolution needed to come about. And so council's the way to do it. Understand right that uh, the councils are, aren't really needed anymore. That God had given us everything needed by the seventh ecumenical councils that we already had. Well, I don't know about need. It's um, yeah. I mean, some of our some of us think we don't need. That was what the four years instead of three years question was about. That we don't really need to do this every three years. But a lot of that had to do with pr- the practical pulling it together in modern context of finding a venue and the travel requirements to for everybody to come together and so forth. So um, some people would say, would agree with you that it's not really necessary, um, but it's it's generally done. It's good to see each other. It's good to, it's good to, to manifest. It's this kind of special thing when all, when you have all the bishops together at the liturgy, the whole standard of bishops, 12 bishops, and them serving together, it's it's a, it's a reminder that the church is more than just Birmingham, Alabama, or or the South, or whatever. But that there's, we but there's really no need for the entire church all over the world to meet. Not not that. Well, some some people would say yes. Some most people would say no. There was an attempt to have a, a worldwide council in Crete a couple years ago. But not all the churches agreed that it was needful, and not all attended. So it, it did not manifest itself uh, in in what the in what the uh, what it was what those who wanted it hoped for. And the reasoning was, well, the, you know, there's really no big theological crisis. So why do we need to have a, an, a what would might be considered an ecumenical council in our day? That theology of the church is settled. Um, it's clear, and and so there may be problems in the world 
that are challenges to the church, but not not doctrinally or dogmatically. The councils, each of them, as they gathered, there was a process of reception that the uh, over time the church in the broader sense would decide is that council authoritative is it definitive does it speak does it speak the truth of the faith that we all can embrace and accept so there was a confirmation process that took time for for the council to be accepted and there were some councils that were later rejected by the church rejected on the basis of holy tradition that they they were they gathered thinking they were going to be an ecumenical council and and in in retrospect the church said no that's not where that's not that's not a, a council that speaks the faith for for all of us so when we speak of the councils we're we're speaking of the seven great ecumenical councils that run from the year 325 to 787 uh, in the first millennium we believe about these councils that they all had official teaching handed down and received by the church, universally accepted and approved, that all their decisions, we would say, were consistent with the revelation of Holy Scripture. Um, there are additionally other local councils that are revered and are honored, such as the Council of Trullo in 681. Um, and again, the, the, the decisions of the councils would later be approved as genuine expressions of the faith and life of the church over time. First Ecumenical Council in Nicaea in the year 325 confirmed the uh, what would become the creed, the basic statement of, of faith, which we'll talk about that, hand that out next week, that affirmed the First Ecumenical Council, affirmed the divinity of Jesus Christ, of being of one essence with God the Father, that he's, he's divine with the same divinity, the same divine reality as God the Father. First Ecumenical Council also uh, set the the system for the dating of Pascha, for the dating of Easter. That um, Christmas is a movable feast, but a set has a set calendar date. Uh, Pascha, Easter, uniquely moves based on uh, determination similar to how the Jews uh, uh, um, um, established their their Passover. Which has to do with the fir- with the uh, spring equinox, the vernal equinox of the sun, and the first full moon after the vernal equinox, and so natural phenomena uh, decide determine the dating of of Pascha and and of Easter in in Western Christianity. So it's it's unique in that respect, and that the the first ecumenical council established that system, which actually the Roman Catholics changed. And, and that's why we our Easter's are often different date. The first ecumenical council said that Pascha Easter had to be um, the first full moon after the vernal equinox and the sun, the Sunday not fall uh, Sunday after the Jewish Passover, not falling in coincidence with the Jewish Passover, so that you have the old Passover and the new Passover, the Jewish Passover, the Christian Passover, the Christian Pascha, and Rome dropped that last stipulation that that. Um, that the uh, the Pascha needs to be separate from the from the Jewish Passover, and, they, and then they also uh, Pope Gregory in the sixteen hundreds, fifteen hundreds changed also changed the calendar that we get the Gregorian calendar, and it has a different reckoning of 
of uh, the vernal equinox to some degree, I think, and it's so it's it, and it's very it's complicated, and it's the question that I don't answer very well. <laughs> of all the questions, it's when I refer you to such and such an article or whatever. But um, anyway, so that's that's um, the the we'll talk a little bit more as we talk about who is Jesus Christ in our Christology uh, class. Um, we'll bring up uh, what was talked about in the councils, but we're, we're not going to get into any more than that right now, just to say it's it's a part of holy tradition. Any other questions, comments, rebuttals, refusals, denials? Well, thank you all very much, and we thank our cooks as always. <laughs>